if you look at the the really great next generation companies, they're really what I call first principles companies. So it's just being really good at what you do and be comfortable with that, be sanguine about that, and don't fall prey to cycles and fads and other things. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question What does it take to face your critics? And I mean squarely, unflinchingly, with full self-responsibility. However, and this part is all important, still willing to defend yourself when it counts. Now, responsibility, it's, it's a really interesting word to me. You know, I've always understood it to mean the ability to respond. Taking full ownership of the fact that while you might not be able to control what happens, you are always able to control what you do next. Now, as a place to begin, you know, I, I think that's a pretty good one. However, what we don't often talk about is those moments where the stakes are high, the information is ever-changing, and there are only bad options on the table. Now that, as my next guest would say, is leadership in the hot seat. Now imagine you're new to the reins of one of the world's most respected brands. You've woken up to a global tragedy of unprecedented scale, that has imploded a huge proportion of your revenue, an out-of-control 24-hour news cycle, all eyes on you, and the legacy of this company now resting in your hands. Jeff Immelt was the ninth chairman of GE and served as CEO for 16 years. He's been named one of the world's best CEOs three times by Barron's. During his tenure as CEO, GE was also named America's most admired company by Fortune magazine and one of the world's most respected companies in polls by Barron's and the Financial Times. He has received no less than 15 honorary degrees, numerous awards from business leadership and shared the President's Council on Jobs and Competitiveness under the Obama administration. He is now also the author of Hot Seat which, as he would describe, is a memoir of leadership in times of crisis. Now, when I first opened that book, one of the first lines grabbed my attention immediately. And that was this. He said, my legacy as the CEO of GE was at best controversial. Now, if you take any time to dive into the press coverage of Jeff's tenure as CEO of GE, having taken over the reins from Jack Welsh back in 2001, Along with all those accolades, you might also read words like tumultuous, misguided, or a disaster. Yet, what you might not read is that during those 16 years, GE also generated more earnings and cash flow than the previous 110 years combined. So how do you tell that story? 
Do you tell that story? Do you set the media record straight, reinsert some much needed context in between the sound bites? Or do you just let the narrative quietly die out and then go on to teach some of those invaluable lessons you learnt on the hot seat to the next generation of leaders? Jeff's answer, you do both. In this conversation, we dived right into the heartbreak of those moments where everything comes crashing down and the hard leadership choices that inevitably come next. Why choosing who you listen to is always the single most important decision you will ever make in life, in love, and in leadership. The three voices that every leader must master in order to effectively drive change. We get into what those voices are and why they are so important to steering yourself and your team forward. Why the role of any leader during and after a crisis is to learn how to absorb the fear of their teams. And what I loved about this is that it begins with not tools and tactics, but having the people and the places available to you as a leader to absorb your own fear. And finally, why it is so much easier to talk about our successes than our failures, especially if there's, you know, there was no great hero's triumph at the end and the damaging impact that our failure to talk about those moments has on those leaders who come next. You know, for me, I, I genuinely feel like we're entering a new chapter now and I'm hoping it's short-lived, where it feels like some of the most the best and the most brilliant minds are now choosing not to lead in our organizations, our communities, and particularly in our politics. You know, because let's face it, who, who would want that? What sane human being dreams of opening themselves and all too often their loved ones up to the scrutiny of 24 hours of analysis, criticisms, memes, and cancellations? But here's the problem with that. What it leaves us with is leaders who thrive on drama, outrage, and ongoing conflict, or those who are just completely immune to the impact of their actions on other people. Now, I know that's a depressing thought, or at least it is for me. But like Jeff, there is something else that we can choose to do. We can start having and supporting different conversations about leadership, ones that celebrate failure as much as success, ones that focus on context, as much as you know, easy to digest content. Ones that celebrate the legacy of a leader as more than just the sum of their wins and their losses, but how they faced up to the challenges that they were given. You know, that seat, that might not be quite a scolding hot, but I'm willing to bet more incredible people would be willing to sit on it. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your journey in leadership or your journey in influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes. I think it's also in the in the social media comments and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address. It'll be in your inbox in the time it takes to pour yourself a cup of tea. On that note, sit back, drive safe, cycle on, sharpen your pencils, and please, please soak up the iconic wisdom of the incredible Jeff Immelt.
Welcome to the podcast, Jeff Immelt. Thanks, Julie. Good to be here. I'm going to start by asking the usual question that I that I ask at the beginning of this podcast, which is, what is there one idea at the moment that's having a significant impact on your thinking or the way that you perceive the world? And it could be a new idea or it could be a, a timeless idea. Yeah. So it's it's both new and old, but I would say it's it's the it's the subject of class. And you know, most people look at the US as Republican and Democrat, but most things that divide us today are really are really class. And and by that I mean I I live on both coasts, both East Coast and West Coast, and I teach a class at Stanford. And I was going from East Coast to West Coast, and I stopped in Wichita, Kansas which is the aviation capital of the US. And there are two companies there run by XGE guys. And I, I spent a day uh, touring two factories in the Midwest. And then I flew out to Stanford, uh, to California, where I do my venture work and teach at Stanford. And what I realized is that my students at Stanford in their, in their aspiration career are never going to intersect with the people I saw in Wichita working in the aviation sector. Right. And it just it just was. And I don't say that judgmentally. I say that as just, you know, they want to do venture. They want to do tech. Uh, they want to do consulting, but they don't want to do kind of hardcore manufacturing, engineering. And and so I, I think a lot today about how in the next generation we're going to bring together different industries, different regions, because, you know, people can talk about Trump and people can talk about Republicans and Democrats and all that stuff. But what really is dividing us is just just class, basic Charles Dickens kinds of things are what's really dividing. And I don't think that's unique to the U.S. necessarily. I think this is really something that's going on. So that's maybe it's old, maybe it's new, but that's something, you know, as I've taught and as I do my work, uh, something I've thought about. You know, in my career, I worked with maybe a million people who were different than I was, right? But my students are all entering their career, all working with people that are just like they are, just like they are, right? And I'm not, I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I, like, I love my students, but it's different. It's, it's, it's causing me to think. And I think that there's a there's a significant question there as well from a leadership standpoint, right? Like if you, how we teach leadership or how we move people through the pathway of leadership. And a part of that is the ability to bring on diversity of opinions, the ability of being able to bring all people to the table and understand all experiences in order to be able to make a, a genuine decision with the best interests of all at mind. I interviewed Bob Chapman, who's the CEO of Barry Waymiller a few months ago now, and he called it the, the concept of stewardship, of the leader as steward, and being a steward of your organisation means that you need to have conversations with at every level of mm -hmm. that organisation. But I don't know that we teach people how to do that at the moment. I think, I think it's not only insider organizations, right? So I, I always, you know, my dad was uh, kind of a frontline manager at GE. So I, I always knew how to converse with really everybody at GE because I lived with everybody at GE. You know, I grew up with everybody and I, I could see the company through their eyes, but, but also on macro ideas. I'll give you something that's near and dear 
I'm sure to your heart as an Australian, which is a climate, you know, like, like I believe that climate change is existential, but I, I would really like to drive change, right? But, uh, you know, I, I was watching a panel from Davos last week, right? And somebody's on a panel and they're saying, well, you know, the only maybe good news of the Ukrainian war is it's, it's made energy prices higher. So that's going to force us to drive the change to green energy sooner. And I want to say, you know, like bullshit on you, really. If you think $7 gas to a middle-class American is going to drive clean technology faster, you arrogant SOB, you know? It's just like, you know, what is wrong with you? So we, we the language bridge and the notion of seeing, you know, and that's why we're not making more progress on things like climate change is because we, you know, everybody at the top, all the elites can see something some way, but it's not a top-down initiative. It's a bottoms-up initiative. It's a state-by-state state and power plant-by-power plant. And our language doesn't encompass those people that need to drive change. And so, you know, one of the things I, one of the things I, I teach in my class, which is like leadership is about convincing the people that don't agree with you, not the people that agree with you. That's actually easy, you know? It's the people that don't agree with you that's the hard part. So anyhow, that's 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 kind of the... That, so that's what's been on my mind is the... Is the you, it's, it's interesting to me, a, a colleague of mine, he's a speaker who speaks all over the world. He's a futurist, talks about future trends, what's happening. And um, he's in, you know, hundreds of organizations every year. And he just sent me his book, his latest book that's coming out soon to read. And it's a segue for him. He's, he's talking about change. And, and what he's saying is that, you know, I have speak, spoken to all his organizations about the trends that are coming, like both top level and frontline staff. And he said, and I've seen, even though people agree that this is coming, I've seen the inability to change to meet it. And one of the things that he pinpoints in that is the language issue. We don't know how to use language well enough to make it accessible and attractive enough for people to get on board. 100%. 100% true. It's, it's one of the things that I, I actually learned from Jack Welch that I, I try to teach my entrepreneurs. And, and I, I also talk about in class, like every leader needs three voices, right? you need a, a total company voice. Like in my case, it was a 300,000 person voice, right? And that's got a certain set of vocabulary. You need a 20 person voice, right? How do you, how do you run a meeting? And you need a one-on-one -on -one voice. You're fired, okay? You, you know, like you're doing great, you're fired. Do this better, do less of this, do that. And, and each one is a different vocabulary. Each one is a different set of verbs. Each one is a different aspiration, you know, and and he was really good at it. I tried to be good at it. I, I've seen leaders fail at it. You know, sometimes entrepreneurs are really good at, you know, here's the here's the total company in the scheme. But you put them one on one with somebody and they're they, like, I can't do it, Jeff. You don't understand. Like, yeah, I, I've, I've met I've met many of those leaders where you put them on a stage in front of you know a thousand people and they will rock the room. Everyone will come out just going, "Where do I sign?" But you put them one on one with a, a human being that's actually responding in real time. 
and can you know talk back in real time and that's that's a different ball game right like this neither's wrong nor right that's a just a different ball game um just as a recommendation by the way because i know that you know you're not busy <laughs> your next book by the three voices of leadership is yeah there you go maybe you can, maybe you can help me right but you know julie so climate is something i've worked on since the early 2000s I would say I would say climate. The reason why climate is failing or is not doing as well as we would like, vocabulary is really in the center of it. We talk past we we talk past each other. We we don't understand that you need a, a, both a, a you know decarbonization message, but also an economic message. Um, we we just are terrible at it, and so I, I quite think that's a great uh, it's a great concept for a book. Well, I, I want to talk about Hot Seat, which when I first saw the book, I thought, I, you know, I was really, I was attracted to both the book itself and also your story. And it wasn't until I got into the book that I realized how layered that was as a journey for you in terms of writing, writing that book. And you start Hot Seats, I'm sorry, Hot Seat with the words, my legacy as a CEO was at best controversial. Why, why was it important for you? It felt like it was important for you to start there. I wanted to tell the story for two reasons. You know, one is I, I, I knew that it was extre an extremely complicated story, that there were good things and bad things. And unless it was told transparently and completely and openly, it would appear to be defensive and a whitewash. And I didn't want that. I didn't need that. And I didn't want that. And it couldn't be that. Right. And the second thing is like most business books really stink and it really stinks because whoever's writing it is like, look at me, I'm a genius. <laughs> you know, everything was great. And I invented, you know, I'm God, I invented everything and everything was perfect. And, I just got to tell you, that's like, you know, it's a lonely job. It's an insecure job. All the shit comes to you every day. All the fun stuff happens elsewhere. All the crap comes to you. Um, you know, and today, like I had it easy compared to what the CEOs deal with today. You know, this, it's, it's only gotten tougher as time goes on. So that's really why I wrote it. I hired uh, a woman who I didn't know, but a woman who was an investigative reporter for Vanity Fair and the LA uh, LA Times. And she was really brutal and really tough on me and others. She interviewed, you know, more than 80 people of every kind. And so um, she, you know, did her work. And so I think Julie, the, the more, kind of the more complicated the story is, the more fulsome it has to be you know it's kind of one of those one of those things and so i knew it was wading into you know a really uh let's say complicated space and so it was important to me that it would be as complete as it could possibly be and part of the defense mechanism of a human being's mind is that you remember the 90 percent of every story that where you're good and not bad and you need other people to tell you, well, that's not the way it really happened. There was these kind of crappy things that you did that I want you to remember as well. And so that's what the book really tried to do. You know, I, I kind of, I'm at peace with it. There were some good things. There were some not good things. I, I think, 
you know, as a business person or just any leader in general, it's okay to be critic. You know, you you if you want to lead, you're going to be criticized, and that's okay. I think I think it's it's also sometimes okay to be lied about, right? But if you're lied about and it actually hurts other people and not just you, you have a right to defend the context, right? If if it's if it's not just hurting you, and if if you're lied about and it hurts other people. But it also makes people make bad decisions because, because of the lies. You probably should, you know, get a, a more fulsome story out there, right? And and that's that's really the background with which I wrote the book. I heard you say in an interview it was a while ago, you said truth equals facts plus context, and you had felt like the context of your tenure there had gone missing in the conversation, which. It does, right? You know, the current news cycles, the way that we treat information and news at the moment is, you know, it is the opposite of of context. Context requires space and time and investigation and, as you said, you know, the, the fullness of a story to be held. Um, you also said that you you weren't sure that you could write it, so you felt like it needed to be written, but you you weren't sure that you could write it. What changed what changed your mind about writing the book? Yeah, like so like in, in some ways, you know, it was you know, it was heartbreaking. You know, in other words, this was kind of the a huge part of my life. You know, I, I have a great wife and daughter, but in 2017, you know, when it ended, I was just heartbroken. I was I was broken, really. And I, you know, we had lived all over the place, but um I wanted to do venture and I convinced my wife uh, to move to California. Uh, you know, I want, I needed space to heal. And, you know, in, in California, like nobody cares about anything but themselves, you know, basically. So it's like, <laughs> it's a, it is, it's a beautiful narcissistic landscape. <laughs> exactly. It's the best place to go. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to hide, but I wanted to heal. Right. I needed I needed some space and time. And again, it was like I said, criticism is fair, you know, and, and there were things I deserve to be criticized for. Um, there was, uh, you know, and there were things that just weren't true. But, you know, I'm sitting around in probably 2018 and you could see like areas around the company where based on the criticism, things were being done that actually weren't very smart, you know, or, or were leading down a path that just wasn't good for the company or just the people that work there, right? And that's probably when I decided to write the book, that, that I basically said, look, not only is the context gone missing, but it's gone missing in a, in a dangerous way. Good people are leaving, bad decisions are being made, uh, the wrong people are winning, and, and there just needs to be a different there needs to be a different narrative about this great company, right? And and let people make the judgments they make. But um, you know, this is and you know, for me, I gave all the money to the my high school, so it wasn't about making money or or anything like that. It was just about putting a more complete picture to what had been a big part of my life, but also what had been a big part of you know, kind of the American business scene for a long time and with a lot of good leaders, a lot of good people and a, products that mattered, a company mm -hmm. that mattered. 
I love that you used the term heartbreak there because I think that it speaks to, especially at the moment, you know, a lot of incredible businesses have, if not gone down over the last couple of years, have significantly, you know, gone to their knees and are now trying to trying to get back up again. And, you know, I think that we can use a lot of jargon to talk about how that feels um, as a leader, as a person in the hot seat in those situations. But the truth of it, as far as I've ever encountered it, is that it's heartbreak. It's heartbreaking to, to watch, watch those things happen. And it's heartbreaking to watch something that you have built, um, you know, be either destroyed or talked about in a way that is not, doesn't, doesn't feel to you to be, to be accurate. How did you move through that? We're going to go to the journey itself in a second, but you know, in the year after you left and you were there, you were CEO 16 years and a lot happened in those 16 years. But how did you move through that in the kind of 12 months? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think you've got to keep going. You, you know, in other words, I, I've talked to a lot of friends and, and uh, I'd say the first, thing, the, the first thing is, is you need, you know, Julie, everybody has, everybody has friends. And when you're, when you're CEO of GE, you have a lot of friends, right? But you need extraordinary friends, you know? <laughs> And you have not the friends that just tell you it's going to be fine. Just exactly. You'll be fine. Oh, you'll be right. As we say in Australia. And and like, you you know, like maybe you go into a down cycle and you have 1200 friends, but you find you have like 17 extraordinary friends. If you're lucky, that's, that's a good amount. I wouldn't say I have 17. I'd say first and foremost, you need extraordinary friends. And I, and I had some extraordinary friends, both in the business world, and personally who stood by me and that helps. And the second thing is, is you've got to keep, you've got to keep moving. You can't, you can't curl up in a ball and you, you've got to keep making a contribution. You got to show up in public, even when you think you're going to be embarrassed or things like that. And you just have to keep, you have to keep moving. Um, You've got to find the ways that you can make a, a relevant contribution uh, whether that's to small companies or founders or startups or teaching. And then you just, you've got to think small again, you know, get out of the limelight, go brick by brick, rebuild a house foundation, brick by brick by brick. And, you know, I, I sit here five years later, I, I did a speaking event in Canada over the weekend. And what you find is, is just like, you know, you're, you're now a different story. You know, you're a, you're a turnaround, right? Or you're, you're some, you're, you're a survivor or you're some kind of different, different story. And there's, there's such a residual goodwill because they remember GE in 2006 or 2012 or 1992 or something like that. And they don't think about the last five years or, or other things, but the most important thing is, you, you have to find it inside yourself uh, to keep moving. You know, I, I, I tell my students, and I've said this for many, many years, which is in your career, you, you basically answer three questions in, our, in your career. It's, it's how fast you can learn. And, and you know, you're just, you just have to learn every day. And 
I lived a life where I could get smarter every day. I, I Some days I got smarter than others, right? But I could get smarter every day. Um, how much you can give to others, right? Are, are you really good at picking people, coaching people, making people better, collecting people, connecting, that kind of thing? And then how much shit can you take? Like, can, can you take a punch? Can you persevere? Can you, and, and, you know, I say to my students, like, I can't even tell you how many nights I went to bed a complete failure, right? And, and just, and just felt like I was just devastated with my own incompetence. And I would wake up the next morning and I look in the mirror and I would say, you're the best person in the world. I can't believe how good you are, you know, and you just have to be able to renew yourself you know, and you have to have this perpetual learning, renewal, perseverance. And typically people give up before their capability limits them. And those are the three questions you have to answer. And there's a theme that runs through your book. Um, it's, it's actually the title of the first chapter, which is showing up. And I think that, you know, my career in leadership is doesn't even hold a candle to yours. Um, however, one thing in those moments where you go to bed and you think, I I am ridiculously inept for this. Like how on earth am I here? Um, those moments, the, the thing that would get me up again the next morning and back on that horse again the next morning would be the knowledge that, okay, I don't, I don't always know what I'm doing. I don't always have the right answers. I don't even always have the right questions, uh, but I know that I will show up. I know that I will show up. And that if I can do that with the best of intentions, then the rest hopefully <laughs> will follow. 100%. But the, the commitment to showing up. 100%. Even, even if you just show up and say, I don't, I don't have the answers today, but I'm here. And together we're going to go down a path. We're going to figure it out. We're going to, we're going to, um, and I, and I, and I think the other thing I talk about, you know, Julie is just absorbing fear. You know, another, another word I, I always have, uh, I always have a hard time with, not that I don't agree with it, but I don't know exactly what it means is transparency. You know, I, I remember I was in Perth during the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster and they were all like GE reactors right in Fukushima. So uh, I was doing an all employee meeting with a thousand oil and gas executives. And so I'd been up all night uh, doing a crisis call and I'm watching CNN and the scroll on CNN. So there's a helicopter above Fukushima and the scroll is, you know, all GE reactors, G's in trouble, you know, uh, probably going to have to evacuate Tokyo, maybe even Los Angeles, blah, 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 blah had to end that call to go do an all-employee meeting, right? So would transparency have been to walk into the all-employee meeting and say, hey, you know what, team? We are really screwed. <laughs> you know, we are, we're in deep trouble. You know, this is really horrible. I haven't slept. <laughs> I haven't slept, you know. You know, you should have seen CNN. I know yeah, you if guys... anyone has any ideas, come to the front. <laughs> But you may want to resign because, man, I don't know. Or is it to say, 
you know, a lot of you have been following what's going on. We've got our best people working on it. Um, you, know, I get, you know, here's the way to think about it. But let's talk about your business, which is working in oil and gas and things like that. So it's, it's uh, you, you know, I, I, I kind of like, um, I always talk about like transparency in the context of let's talk about the way things are and also the way things could be if they were really well run. Like, in other words, let's think, let's treat transparency as a complete thought and not just blurting out, you know, treat it as. You had this, sorry. sorry. Yeah, but you, you know, in other words, here's the way things are. Like, as you guys can all see, there's a nuclear uh, disaster in Fukushima, but. There's an incredible, uh, an incredibly technically strong team that's looking at it. Uh, the reactor was built in 1967. Our general counsel has gone through the contract that was written uh, at that time. It's incredibly well structured. We're going to give TEPCO whatever resources we can. You know, there's a lot still to be known. Blah 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 blah. You know, complete the thought versus just blurting out. You know, just to. A lot of people think transparency is taking my burden and giving it to Julie. That's transparency, right? Yeah. And it's funny you have an issue with the word transparency, and I've mentioned it on this podcast before. My, I have an issue with the word authentic. Yeah. Because I feel like the same thing. You know, I just, I don't, I don't want you as a leader, nor do I want as a leader to show up a hundred percent authentically, because a hundred percent authentically could literally be, as we said, I am about to, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to vomit. And, yeah. you know, I have no idea what we're doing next. And, you know, plenty of leaders have been in that situation many, many, yeah. many times. And you said in the book while we're, we're talking, oh, sorry, to complete that thought, the opposite of that is to show up intentionally, which yeah. is here are the facts as we know them. And then, you know, my intention is here is to discuss this, is to move us forward. Yeah. So you're sharing where, you know, what's happening, but you were also showing up with an intention as opposed to just a burden swap, as you described yeah, it. I, that's exactly, it's exactly the, the burden swapping and the, uh, is what I've always, you know, it, it's again, sometimes in my business school class, I unteach things that they've been taught like burden swapping is a good thing or that you have to listen to everybody. That's the other one that I, that I try to teach them. I, I say, listen, when I, I introduced a, a green initiative, clean tech initiative in GE in 2006, right? And I had 30 top executives in the room and the vote was 28 to two against doing it. And we did it anyhow, right? Because everybody's, you know, people said, this is stupid. Uh, we're not in business to do this stupid shit, right? Blah, 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 blah. And I said, hey, guys, just get in line or leave. This is time that we drive this. And by the way, we can make money doing it, right? This is not a this is not a feel good. And it worked spectacularly well, right? I also got in trouble when I didn't, you know, um, Ruth Parrott at Morgan Stanley told me to sell commercial real estate before the financial crisis. I didn't listen. I got in trouble. You know, so I listen, I've, I've been on both sides of the trade. I've got, I've done great by not listening. I've gotten in trouble by not listening, but I've listened a lot, you know, so here's what I've learned. There's like five people I listen to all the time that are around me. 
And I never, you know, I never contradict these five people because I trust them because they always put the company first, right? They, they always, they have a true heart. They always put the company first. And there's a bunch of people I, you know, I, I hear them, but I, I, because they, they're selfish and they don't work that hard and they, they, they don't, you know, they're, they're good at what they do, but they're not, they're not true hearts. Right. And companies are filled with all kinds of people. And, you know, I'm not a person with a big vocabulary, but I, I learned the meaning of the word cacophony, right? Because that's what companies are like when you're trying to make a decision. It's like all these symbols going off around you and, you know, it's hard to make a melody. And, and that's the, that's the bottom line. And actually, you know, that was a, a lesson that I had, I learned the hard way when I first started in my leadership journey in my early twenties, which was, I thought that the best approach to leadership was to, you know, bring a problem to a, to a table and, you know, what should we do? Listen to all opinions and then try and find a way to make everybody right. Or try and find a way to make every, and actually a very smart person gave me a piece of advice. So they, they don't want you to turn up with no solution. You know, they want you to turn up with a solution and then debate the solution that you have, you know, that you have come up with. A thousand percent. You should be, you shouldn't be hosting the podcast. You should be, somebody should be hosting you. You've got more of the better, you've got more of the better. <laughs> well, the most you know what? That's, that brings me to another quote from your book, actually, which I very much related to um, because I was not a, a brilliant leader and I, I had my moments. I had my great moments and I had my shocking moments. But you, you said this beautiful thing. You said, um, as a CEO, I've been about as brilliant as I was lucky, by which I mean too often I was neither. And that really resonated with me because, you know, as, as a leader, as a CEO, you have your moments of brilliance, right? There's a reason you're there and you have your moments of brilliance. They're few. Sometimes if you're lucky, there's many, sometimes they're few and far between, depending on the situation. And you have also, you have your moments where you just got lucky, where you listen to the right person at the right time. But it got me thinking, and you know, if we can't rely on our brilliance to show up every day, and if we can't rely on our luck, to show up every day. What are the, the traits or the mindsets or the behaviors that we can rely upon as leaders to show up every day? I've come out here as in my second life and really become a student again. You know, Julie, really become a student again of good companies. You know, I read a lot, I watch a lot, and it's given me a chance to think. And I and I have to say, like, the company I've really fell on, have fallen in love with, not me uniquely, but it is Apple, right? And so what's made Apple great? What, what's made Apple great, it's what I call a first principles company. And that is, in the beginning, they set out to make really great products, foundationally. They, they delight their customers foundationally, right? They, they drive really a, real efficiency, like foundationally. And you don't read about them, you know, like lean manufacturing and Six Sigma and the last bullshit management idea, blah, blah, blah. You know, you just, they, they're, just they're just innovative product. You know what? They're not happy with the way Intel and Qualcomm make semiconductors. They do it themselves. 
you know, and, and, and it's just, they're just, so that's what I call a first principles company. That, that's actually what Elon did at Tesla. It, it's actually what Gates did at micro, you know, so if you look at the, the really great next generation companies, they're really what I call first principles companies. So I, I think if I was advising, you know, what is it that you can take to the bank today? It's just being really good. Just, be, you know, it, just be really good at what you do and be comfortable with that. Be sanguine about that. Um, and good, to, you know, good days and bad. And don't fall prey to cycles and fads and other things. And, you know, it's just they don't manage the stock price. They don't watch Jim Cramer on CNBC. You know, they don't they don't do any of those things. And again, it's it's easy to say hard to do. But but really, I think that's really what I would that's really what I would say. You know, there's they're, they're just really about the essence of business. Their bureaucracy is very sparse and they're really dedicated to to the principles of technology and what they do. I love the I love the notion of first principles. Yeah. Like what what are your first principles? And those are the things you can continually come back to, you know, when when luck and brilliance and sometimes even courage fall short. Yeah. Yeah. What are the things you can come back because to? If you're running Boeing Boeing, your first principles you gotta make great planes. If you're running, you know, we have I have 12 CEOs come through uh, uh, my class every year, right? And one was the Delta's kind of the best run American airline, right? He has first principles in terms of how he runs the airline. And it makes a huge difference. And you can see that compared to United or Southwest or the other airlines. So, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to go back in time um, just for a little while, which was the first week into your tenure as CEO, and what happened what happened during that week, which was nine eleven. And when I was reading that kind of chapter of your book, and I know it spanned a few different places, you said that GE was connected to nearly every part of that tragedy. Now, I was I was really surprised by that. I hadn't it, I wouldn't have put those those two things together. Can you give me examples of the different impacts? So you're one week into the job here. Give me some examples as to what happened during that week. Yeah, so uh, so 9-11, the tragedy happened. So uh, at the board meeting on Friday, I was elected CEO and chairman. On uh, Monday, I did an all-employee meeting to kind of introduce myself. I flew to Seattle Monday night, and then Tuesday morning, 9-11 happened. And so we own 1,200 aircraft at GE Capital. We had about 50% market share of the aviation sector of aircraft engines. 50%. 50%. We insured uh, a, a big chunk of the World Trade Center uh, through our insurance business. We owned NBC, right? So we owned the biggest network in the U.S. And so... Um, we televised without commercials for a week. We had a big write-off on the insurance of the World Trade Center. Um, we had to worry about all the U.S. airlines going into bankruptcy. Uh, we had to worry about, would people ever fly again? 
really all kinds of things. So, I mean, it was just like a whirlwind of disaster, right? In addition to two of our employees died, um, we worried about kind of the safety of our buildings and things like that. There was all kinds of uh, concerns, let's say, that I, you know, you wouldn't even have thought about beforehand about, uh, uh, you know, physical safety and would there be a, other attacks and things like that. So, yeah, no, it was just kind of like crisis management, um, you know, 101 from like day one. I mean, it really was day one. And when I was reading through all the implications, one, it, it also struck me how many implications hit the business during that, you know, essentially the first 48 hours of your tenure that I wouldn't have even thought of. And there was there was one where you were told you needed to buy a billion dollars of American airline, e -E I'm going to say this right, EETC. So it was, it was, you know, Julie, so we had like, we, we had all these like exposure to the airlines because we leased them aircraft. And so every night we would have kind of like these deal reviews to go through, you know, because if the airlines went into bankruptcy, then we would take big write-offs on the air, 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 uh, air, airplanes and things like that. So, you know, one night it would be, uh, you know, American needs a billion dollars. We need to buy some of their bonds, which are called uh, WTCs. And we had 48 hours to make a decision. Right. So Otherwise, had, they were going to go bust. They were going to go bust. They needed a billion dollars of cash. And uh, we had maybe a dozen people in the room and and I'm there. And I said, you know, the only uh, problem is I don't know what a WTC is. Right. So there was a vice chairman who was a guy named Dennis Thurman, who I really loved. And but the guy who ran G Capital, like I was slowing everything down and he was getting kind of irritable and pissed off. But Dennis, God love him, he would stop and say, okay, we're going to explain this to Jeff, even if it takes another hour. And so Dennis would go up on the board and say, okay, here's, here's what the capital structure looks like, things like that. And then Dennis was a, really a gruff, he was just a grumpy, gruff, but really super shrewd and smart. And so the other thing that happened, Julie, was because nobody – you know, nobody knew that a plane could be used as a missile, right, until 9-11. All the countries in the world had to pass a liability waiver so that we couldn't get sued if there were new terrorists. And so we grounded airplanes until all the countries passed this liability regime. So, so airplanes around the world were all grounded until this particular liability. Australia was one of the last ones. And so... We every night we would we would uh, have to call like the president of the airline or even like the minister of aviation or something like that and say, look, you have 14 G our business is called GCAS, GCAS airplanes. You can't fly them tomorrow until you pass this liability regime. Right. And so we did the calls. And so Dennis would call and he would call like the president of Poland. Right. And he said, okay, you have 14 aircraft, you can't fly them tomorrow. And you could hear the guy screaming on the other line, you know, blah, 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 blah. and they'll say, hey, you can't fly the planes. And the guy would be screaming, Dennis, say, Dennis would say, hey, fuck you, you can't fly the planes, shut up, uh, you know, blah, 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 hang up. And then the next one was me. I, I needed to call like the president of Qantas or something like that. But I said, you know, Dennis, 
you're so good at that. Why don't you do the next call? So <laughs> you take my call as well. <laughs> You've got a special skill. You've got a special skill here. Special sledgehammer skill going on there. Still going on so that's like four days into the job. I'm calling prime ministers of countries, you know, saying that your plane's grounded until you pass an insurance regime that says we won't get sued in case terrorists are in your country ready to fly aircraft into buildings. How do you, again, I, I remember reading in the book that there was a moment during all of that where you called Gigi Michelson yeah. from the GE board of directors. And during that kind of first initial week, and again, it's worth saying again, you've only been in the job for a couple of days. Um, and you said, I feel like I want to vomit all of the time. Yeah. How, how have you or how did you learn how to deal with your own fear? It got better over time. But at that moment, I just felt like there were days during that period that I just felt like I couldn't do it. There was just so much. But I kept showing up. You know, I, I kept uh, the, the, a straight face. But I, I said, you know, Gigi, I... I need help. You know, I need, I need to know that you guys are with me and, and do you have any advice? Can I be doing anything better? And Gigi had like two things, piece of advice. She said, first of all, you're the best. You're, you're awesome. All the things you're doing so far, it's not great. So she said, second of all, don't call Jack. She said, second of all, second of all, you can do this on your own. This is a great test for you. You just keep going you can do this by yourself. You don't need any help. Just keep going. And, and that kind of like, you can do it was exactly what I needed. And she was awesome. Right. I, my, my, my early board, they were great and they were very helpful. Do you regret, do you, do you regret not calling Jack? Cause it, it, until you just said that it didn't even occur to me that that would have been on the table, but do you regret not calling him or are you, you look back and you go, no, I needed to, I needed to make my mark there. I caught him a lot over the, particularly in the early years, but it's, it's one of those things where um, it's an interesting thing about leaders and successors and advice. You know, like um, some people, you know, my lead director for a lot of years was the ex-CEO of Johnson & Johnson named Ralph Larson. And Ralph was able to give advice saying, here's what I would do if I were you, right? Jack was incapable of that. Jack's advice was, here's what you should do. <laughs> here's what you should do, right? And I knew that about Jack. So if you were going to ask him for advice, he was going to give it to you in a way that was like context-free. It was just do it my way, but not it, not your way, right? He was never able to see life quite that way. Not a positive or negative. That was just not in his in his wheelhouse. It was just his style, you know? So some people are able to give advice in a way that you can tee it up for somebody in their lifestyle, right? In their frame of view, in their moment, in their time. That wasn't the way he could do it. Let's just talk about talk about Jack for a second. Um, you know, you, you talk about your opinions of Jack in the in the book, and, and that's not actually where I wanted to where I wanted to go with the question. You know, you replaced an iconic CEO who had been CEO for twenty years. Um, he was 
voted CEO of the century. You know, regardless of how, you know, true true that feels to you having been inside the company after after you took over, that's a that, those are big shoes. Those are really big shoes. And I know that you talk about in the book how difficult it was to walk in after a tenure like that and start making some changes. What did you, you know, you would have heard the words, that's not how we do things around here, a lot, I'm assuming, during that period. What did you learn about driving what was potentially unpopular change? Yeah, I think when you look, it's always easier to replace a bum. So first and foremost, you know, it's it's much easier, you know. Oh, it's much easier to be the hero. It's always easier to be the hero. For your listeners. But I, I think that the key thing is, is you've got to make it about the environment and not about personalities. You, you know, you've got to make it about here's what's going on in the world. And because of these changes going on in the world, we've got to change. We, we've got to do things differently. We've got to do things better. We've got to do things faster. We've got to, we've got to do this in, in this way. And it's not about Jeff versus Jack, or it's not about Jack at all. In fact, in many ways, he's irrelevant. It, this is about, you know, China's growing or digital's growing or, or the environment is more of a concern or things like that. So I think, Julie, you've got to be willing to peg everything has to be about the changes that are going on in the world. And if we, if you want to stay relevant in the 21st century, and, and even if you do that, it's still hard, right? Even if you do that, it's still, it's still incredibly hard. I, I see a ton of legacy companies in Silicon Valley that are coming out trying to drive digital transformation. And, and, and it's still, they're still way behind, right? And they know the technology is coming. They know they need to change. They know how hard it is. But even with all that, you know, getting the right people, getting the right culture, getting the right environment, getting the right business model is still incredibly uh, difficult. Change is hard in big companies. Change is really hard. Do you, question that pops into my head then, do you start with consensus building? Do you start with trying to get everybody on the bus in the ways that they need to get on the bus? So individually, collectively as teams, nations, or do, do you start with, you know, this is an on the bus or on, off the bus situation. I'm not going to try and, you know, I'm not going to coax you. I think it's a great uh, question. I, I would say I, I tended to do it more, you know, a little, I, I would say I lean 60-40 on fiat versus consensus. So, you know, with 300,000 people, you need a little bit of consensus. But if you did totally consensus, you were screwed, right? So I, in, in 2010, we did a huge global initiative that was spectacularly successful and really changed the shape of the company. And it was mainly tops down, but had lots of momentum inside the company. And it was a little bit of fiat and a little bit of consensus, but a lot of fiat, right? But it worked. And then I tried to do it with digital and it didn't work, you know, it didn't work. And, and it just, and it just was just so freaking hard. Right. And, and, and I think to a certain extent, what happens in digital is so many things need to change, right? You need, you need, there's a technical change. There's also a mindset change. There's a mindset change. There's an organizational change. There's, there's a cultural change. 
but it's so critical to survival and to, so I think to a certain extent, what you have to do is actually reorganize the totality of the company. You can't have big pockets of resistance. You have to break the resistance into smaller. Uh, if I had to do it over again, I would have kind of decoupled the, I, I would have actually broken the company down into smaller pockets. So I didn't have big pockets of resistance. I, I would have really broken it down into smaller, smaller organizations so that no one organization could have stopped the momentum. But it's, uh, you know, the question you ask is, is really, it's, 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 it's actually quite a relevant question for every change initiative that, that goes on. And, and at the end of the day, I think the, um, you know, after years of kind of uh, getting bureaucracies out of the system, I see, I see way too much bureaucracy, you know, back into, you know, again, I, I sit in the US. And look, you know, our president's unpopular, politicians are unpopular, you know, we, we have a, we have a baby formula issue in the US, who would have thought, you know, you'd sit here that, the, you know, maybe the most successful country in the world over time, can't get enough baby formula on the shelves. And we blame the president of the United States, you know? We don't blame the companies for, for not having enough baby formula, but it's the company's fault, right? So it's crazy. So go figure. You talked about the separating out of the entities. Yeah. And I've heard that a number of times recently. I've heard it from CEOs. I've heard it from um, innovation experts that the smartest way to approach innovation as a leader is often to, to break off pieces. Yeah. And to say, okay, I am going to create the company that is going to beat my company. Your job is to go out there and compete with the mothership on all things tech, on all things digital, basically just reinvent how we do things as a separate entity and we need to compete with you. And so then you've got both those pieces that you're, that you're running there, one keeping the, each keeping the other sharp, essentially. Mm -hmm. Is that a way that you would have gone with it? I think that can work. You know, I think that can work. I, I was taking kind of a different approach, Julie, which is, you know, kind of when we were trying to drive the digital initiative, we had a bunch of, let's say, 10 or $20 billion revenue divisions. So they were big. I would have broken them back down into being three or $4 billion divisions. I would have, instead of having, let's say, 10, uh, uh, 10, $10 billion divisions, I would have had $25 billion divisions. And in each one, I would have had their own digital frame, you know, so that you had more, less bureaucracy, more generation of ideas, and, and fewer, fewer kind of antibodies, you know, antibodies grow in bigger bureaucracies, more ideas, more speed, more capability, you know, being able to do that. So that that's what I, I think it's just size be, uh, breeds bureaucracy, bureaucracy breeds antibodies. It's too important to, to get this right. And you've got to you've got to be able to do it. So I'm kind of like on in a boat now of like just it, big organizations have to kind of get after this anti bureaucracy mode yet again however you need to take it on you've got to take it on again and again i've i've seen this 20 years ago i see it again today i i think it was from your book you said that um and as i remember it was from one of the the partners at bcg this original quote yeah. that 
complexity in the world at large has increased by 6% over the past few decades, but um, organizational complexity has increased by 35%. Yeah, I think that's, again, I think it's, I I go back to, we've now had like a complete generation of management theory, whereas it has been positive, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, product of it right so I, I it's like i'm not here i'm not here because i'm like i have any right to be critical because i'm a product of it but it's gone too far right so i'm into like first principles anti-complexity anti-bureaucracy digital transformation right that that's that's kind of what i would get everybody back into right if you're if you're running an airline on-time delivery, you know, premium fare, you know, uh, those are, that's what, not capital allocation and blah, blah. You know, if you're in the aviation business, you're really not in the capital allocation, you know, like I don't think Tim Cook has ever talked about capital allocation. He's talking about great products, great service, you know, that's what he talks about. So I just think, I, I think, I think we've, we've had a whole generation of professional management, professional investing, private equity, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great, great. There's something new that's coming. It's going to come in big companies and small. I don't think this is a big company, small company. And really sitting in the valley, I don't think tech's going to, I don't, you know, it's too much of a bubble here, right? Like I don't sit here and say software is going to take over the world because People here like California too much. They, they're 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 too lazy in some ways to take over Alabama or 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 Virginia or something like that. So I, I still think there's going to be another wave, industrial wave out there yet to, uh, yet to be had, but it's going to be in a different structure than where where it is right now. You said I've, I've I'm going a lot to quotes here, but there was so many quotes from the book that really struck me. Um, you said I made a th- I made thousands of decisions impacting millions of people, often in the midst of blinding uncertainty and second guessed by countless critics. I just wa- I wanted to speak to that because you know many leaders have been in a version of that over the past two three years, and, and every leader has found themselves in some kind of a version of that. You know, large numbers, small numbers. What was, what did you come to use as your decision-making compass during those times? Because when you don't have enough information and when, again, we can't rely on luck or brilliance and everybody has competing opinions, what did you come back to as your compass? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, I think that the, again, it, it's, you've got a circle of people that you're listening to views from. So it's kind of like, you pick your, your you pick your own board of directors, right? You do the best you can on what I would call risk reward, right? So you get the best information and data you can on risk reward. I think a good leader always walks around with a point of view, right? My point of view was uh, market share, markets rule, you know, technology, but when in doubt, go with the market. Um, and then you, uh, make a decision and live with the decision that you make, right. And, and learn from it, but make it be willing to make it. 
So and having uh, having a clear north star there that you just mentioned, you know, when in doubt, yeah, go with no, the market. Yeah, I think it's like like I think you you know like like I think you know sometimes people think their 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 aspect or, or their north star is we'll see. Okay, we'll see. You're not going to run anything if we'll see is your north star, right? You've got to have some kind of point of view, right? You you, you just you you just have to walk around. And everybody knew that my point of view was like, if we're in a crisis and we get a chance to come out of the crisis with higher market share, we were going to do that. We were going to do that. My CFO knew that. My salespeople knew that. My manufacturer, my manufacturing people knew that. And we did that. We acted on that, right? Even if it meant taking a little bit more risk, even if it meant kind of, you know, do, doing things that, made some people uncomfortable every now and then we would do that. So that was the point of view with which we ran the place. My CFO, Keith Sharon, you know, I never made one decision that I didn't ask his opinion on or that I didn't listen to kind of what his perspective was. So there was, there was always kind of a co-pilot that had this voice that was like, you know, he was like the village priest, you know, there was, there was somebody that you would always, and I, I think it was just, I never, panicked you know julie it's like knowing what to do is kind of like easy but knowing when to do it is always hard so it's being deliberative about you know kind of like you know if you're too late it's bad if you're too early it's bad but kind of that sense of okay we've got 24 hours to make this decision or we've got a month to make this decision or we've got a year to make this decision in a crisis you typically have 12 hours to make a decision and knowing when those 12 hours are. So, you know, those are the ways that you kind of make a decision and you kind of, you know, I, I would go entire weeks without reading newspapers sometimes. Because like when you, when you know the truth, you don't need to read an interpretation of the truth. And I would go home and I always try to keep a separation with, with my family and work, but I could tell that my wife had read like a really crappy article about me and I'd go home and she just wanted to like, Oh, and I'd say, I don't want to, she'd want to like say that asshole, this said, this, I said, I don't want to hear it. Just don't say, don't tell me, don't tell me what they said. Or don't tell me what they wrote. I just don't want to, I don't want to hear it, you know? And it's just, you just need, you need this kind of sanguine, you, you need the ability, this peace of mind that sometimes if you're reading about it in real time, you can't, you can't keep your wits about you to kind of do the things you need to do uh, you know, to be to, to make a, a clear decision. That's part of what you were saying about originally when, at the beginning of this conversation, which was choosing who you listen to. Yeah. making a clear and conscious choice as to the information sources that I'm going to allow in yeah. so that I can stay, you know, focused on track and move as quickly as I need to move. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and I, the last thing I'd say, Julie, is this notion of um, having conviction. It's, it, this is another real, like real trick of leadership, which is a good leader has got to have conviction and you, you've got to like, hear things at the same time you know in other words you you've got to be able to be like 
particularly when you run a big company of hundreds of thousands of people, if they see weakness at all, you lose 50,000 people right away. Okay. So you've got to walk into a room and say, we are going to do China, right? We're, we're going to do digital. And if you don't, if you show any, if you walk in the room and say, we're going to do digital, I think you've lost 50,000 people. So you've got to, I say we're going to do digital, but you have to like have a little bit of sensory perception with the 15 people that say, but here's how you can do it better. You know, you can do it. And, and so you've got to be able to have a maximum amount of conviction while still allowing a few new ideas or, or, or self-correction in the side door. And that's a real trick. That is really hard to do. Uh, I'm not sure I always did it well. I always try to do it well, but it's hard to do especially in big, big distributed organizations. And there's a, there's a truth to the fact that your energy, your certainty is what fuels momentum as a leader, you know, pace the leader, pace of the pack. We've all heard that one. Thousand percent. Um, and when you, in order to hold that, in order to hold that space and stay that certain and keep that momentum going, you need to be very careful about the voices that you let in, but you still need to let some voices in and not just the ones that agree with you. hundred, hundred percent. That's another good book. And it's, and it's really, it's really like, you, you know, again, like, um, you know, what makes, what makes Elon Musk great? What makes Elon Musk great? You know, he's, he's so, you know, so think about, when, when, when he did Tesla, like every electric vehicle was a piece of crap. And he was the only person that really saw that it could be a great car, it could be a luxury car. Amazing what he did. And it could be a power generating units, things like that. Um, you know, personally, I think he's great, by the way. I think he's amazing and, and good for everything. You know, look, personally, I wish he wouldn't do Twitter, you know, and I bet he's got... 80% of the people that work at Tesla is probably secretly saying, don't do Twitter, you know, but, you know. Somebody remove his phone, remove the app he's from Elon his phone. Musk. You know, he's Elon Musk, right? So does he, does he keep going forward? Does he listen? You know, what, what does he do? So it's just this incredible, just this incredible point of leadership, which is you really, you really need to have conviction to get anything important done. Leaders who say we'll see fail. I've seen it, I've seen them fail time after time after time. And and leaders that can't make a decision fail time after time after time. But if you don't allow a few voices in, you also fail. Right. Mm -hmm. So so this notion of acting and listening is kind of a trick. I'm gonna my one of my last questions. You you said leadership, which I think we've covered in many different ways today, um, is an intense journey into yourself. Probably more so when it um, when it goes wrong than when it goes than when it goes right. When it goes right, it's not so much of a journey into yourself. It's more of a receiving of applause. But when it goes wrong, it definitely is. What's the what's the number for any leaders out there? Any CEOs out there right now who have gone through periods, a massive period of uncertainty, who have 
gone through periods of time where there is no handbook as you did. What's the number one lesson that you would say that you took from that journey with GE? I'd say, I'd say a couple of things. Like one is in some way, shape or form. So I'm 66 years old now, you know, in some way, shape or form, I probably thought about leadership every day for the last 40 years, every day. What, what am I learning? What am I doing? Uh, how can I reflect uh, every day? You know, so it's such a, it's such an evergreen kind of learning process. And, and I think if you want to be good at it, you've got it, you just got to be willing to inspect it and think about it and dwell on it and stuff like that. And then I would say to your listeners, I'd say like sometimes to, even when you try and your intentions are good and you, and you work your ass off and, and you've, you've done everything you know how to do, it just doesn't work the way you want it to, right? Sometimes you can, you can give it a thousand percent effort and do it with love and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work the way you want it to. And then you, you, you hit a fork in the road and you can either, you know, suck your thumb or you get off your ass and keep going. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. Keep showing up, however big or small. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure, a pleasure to have you on. Same here. Hopefully we meet in person someday. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.